This week's sermon is the second in uh, a series on the seven last words of Christ, traditionally understood to be the words Jesus spoke on the cross. Last week we began with the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And this week, the word drawn from the gospel lesson is the next word, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These sermons are all accompanied by a, uh, by a work of music. The choir sung uh, this morning during the anthem, the second movement of Haydn's work, the, second, the seven last words of Christ. And we're blessed with this counterpoint of word and music as we discover these words. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and often a mystery. And so we call upon you to bless us this day as we read and hear your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just a couple of years into my ministry, when I was back in Chicago, I received a nice phone call, a very nice phone call from a member of my church. I picked up the phone one morning and the conversation began, Adam, we'd very much like for you to officiate our wedding. And this is always a pleasure, and I get this phone call often, but this one was memorable because it then continued, Adam, our wedding is in the Cayman Islands. Well, what a treat, I thought, and it was. The resort was beautiful, the wedding was great fun, and the couple's family and friends were all so nice and welcoming. At the couple's invitation, I stayed on after the wedding for a couple of days and laid on the beach and went scuba diving. It was paradise. But after several days in paradise, I was ready to come home. There were things that snuck up on me that made it feel not so much like paradise anymore. I was traveling alone, and I became a little bit lonely because I've never been great at making fast friends. I can enjoy a nice resort just as much as the next guy, but I've always been a little bit uncomfortable having another human being wait on me hand and foot. And after a few days, that wore out too. And honestly, it was extremely generous of the couple to insist on paying my way and inviting me to enjoy this vacation. But after a while, there was a little bit of jealousy and bitterness that came along with enjoying a vacation I knew I could never afford on my own salary. All of these little things started to sneak up upon me. It, it was paradise. And I have no regrets, and I enjoyed the time that I was there thoroughly, but I wouldn't have wanted it to last forever. Sometimes we just get restless. I felt the same way on other vacations and getaways I've had, a week that I spent in Istanbul in a modest little room that had a remarkable view of the Blue Mosque and the Bosphorus. 
a trip on safari in graduate school in Namibia with some great friends, a trip by myself down the Pacific Coast Highway on a Harley Davidson, a bucket list item that I fulfilled just a few years ago. I've been blessed with some great experiences in life, but usually by the time that they are done, I'm ready to come home. Regardless of how much it may be like paradise, most of us eventually find things that we would like to do differently or we start missing what's going on someplace else. Human beings just tend to get restless. If you spend enough time talking to religious people, eventually the idea of paradise will come up. And the question about paradise seems to be, what is it? Is paradise a vacation at the beach? Is it streets paved with gold? Is it heaven by any definition, even if you're not quite sure what that definition is? Is there such a thing as paradise? Is there really such a place, or is it only an idea? Is there one perfect definition of paradise? Or is it a little different for everyone? And if that's true, who else is there with you? Is paradise about eternity? Does it go on forever? And if it does, is there anything so good that you would really want for it to last forever? Well, even with all of these unanswered questions, it seems like paradise must be something pretty good. Good enough that our spirits are lifted when we read in the Gospels that a criminal beside Jesus asks him to save him. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we love the way that that sounds. It gives us hope. This is a criminal after all, and he's waited until the very end of his life to repent. So we think maybe there is hope for the rest of us, for we have all made our own mistakes and many of us are still not sure quite what it is that we believe. Maybe there's hope left for us too. For these and plenty of other reasons, paradise seems like it must be good news, and yet the question still remains, what is this paradise of which Jesus speaks? For all of the attention that many religious people give to heaven, from visions of pearly gates and streets paved with gold to vague statements about going to a better place, the Bible says surprisingly little on the subject. This word, paradise, that Jesus uses in today's scripture lesson, it only comes up two other times in all of the New Testament. One of them is when Paul is briefly describing the visionary experience of someone he knows. And the other is at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, where there is a reference made to the tree of life, the same tree from the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Genesis. 
Craig Barnes is a theologian and minister. He's the president of Princeton Seminary. He thinks that the paradise that we hope is waiting for us somewhere in the future has something to do with that tree of life all the way back in Genesis and the Garden of Eden, the paradise that we left back at the dawn of creation. In the beginning, God creates the world and calls it good. It is paradise, Barnes says, because there human beings live at home with God. And then Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of life and they are expelled from the garden. They no longer live at home in paradise. And following these first three short chapters at the book of Genesis, everything else in the Bible, all of the rest of the pages, are a recovery plan. It begins in Genesis 12 with the story of Abraham being told to leave his home and go out on a journey. It continues with Moses and the law and the stories of the prophets and of the coming of Jesus Christ. And all of these things, all of them are efforts that God makes to help us as we try to navigate this journey we are now taking, a journey outside the safe walls of the garden, away from paradise, and hoping that one day we will find our way home. That's the story of the Bible. Interestingly, Craig Barnes notes that even back in the garden, even back in paradise, there was this tree of life. There was something forbidden in the middle of the garden that we could not have. And how could it be paradise, he asks, if we don't have it all? It is striking that the creation narratives make a point of telling us that this forbidden fruit was in the midst of the garden, right in the middle, not off in some forgettable corner, but right there in the middle of the garden. This suggests we were created to live with an unavoidable reminder that home, paradise, was never meant to be perfect or whole, or complete. And that's God's idea of a good creation. The tree of life was meant to serve as an altar of prayer, a place where we could bend our knees and confess that we are mere creatures who were never meant to have it all, but were dependent on our Creator, our God, who alone is whole and complete. And that pristine, sacred communion between us and God was precisely what made the garden so very good. The takeaway seems to be that perhaps even at home in the garden, the definition of paradise is being in a place where we can allow God to take care of us. Paradise is being at peace with the things that are beyond our control and being in a place where God can take care of us. Here, outside the garden, 
where we are now, but even back inside of it, we have to learn how to live in the midst of our imperfections and to make peace with the ways in which we are not God. We have to learn to give thanks for the good life that we have, even though we do not have it all. And that seems like an important reminder to us, for we live in a culture that is obsessed with wholeness. Every fitness plan and all-natural diet promises you wholeness. So does every move up the professional or economic ladder, every addition to family life, every move from one home to the next, from one city to the next. So many things in life, right down to every product on the shelf, they seem to promise wholeness. They all promise to complete you. I cannot tell you how many pastoral conversations I have that contain some idea of the search for wholeness. The hoped-for spouse who will take away your loneliness. The newborn child who will fix your marriage. The bigger or renovated house, the next rung on the corporate ladder and the pay bump that comes with it. All of these are seen as a way to wholeness, a wholeness that does not exist, especially here outside of Eden. And yet it is so enticing that it is our favorite lie that we tell ourselves that there must be a way in this life to get to wholeness and to make life's imperfections go away. Sadly, even the church often participates in this lie. Anytime you've gotten the suggestion that if you only join this service opportunity or that Bible study or if you pray just a little bit harder or believe just a little bit more, if you do these things, you will feel whole and complete with God. Sometimes the church creeps into saying these things and the Bible never makes that promise. The importance of faith is that it helps us to navigate the journey and to one day find our way back home. But the Bible never promises to make our problems go away. So the challenge worth pursuing seems to be not the quest for a wholeness, a wholeness we cannot have, but the ability to make peace with the wholeness we cannot have and to learn to appreciate the gift of every day we are given in this life and to make the most of it. And because I do not claim to fully understand how this works from my own experience, I will tell you that I find it most often by watching others especially the lives of some of the older adults in our congregation, when they are nearing the end of life, when they are closest to going home again. Many of you will remember Dottie Cowan, who died last year, a member of our congregation. In the months before she died, I had a visit with Dottie in the hospital, one that I won't soon forget, 
She had had an extended stay in the hospital without the ability to get out of bed much, and one day Dottie said to her, her nurse, Who is that man who drives the big floor sweeper up and down the hall each day? Would you ask him if he has time to come into the room one day and to pay me a visit? The very next day, around the time of shift change, the nurses came in and started to clear away some extra furniture, the table and chairs, and then that man pulled that, that floor sweeper into the room and right up next to Dottie's bed. And for almost an hour, the two of them sat there and talked. Dottie asked him to tell her all about that machine that he uses for his work, and she also asked all about the gentleman who drove it, who had never been asked such questions before about his work. And the next day, the nursing staff told Dottie that when that man left her room, he was overcome with emotion. He had never had anyone express that kind of interest in the work that he did day after day. He felt so valued and blessed and cared for by another human being. In her deeply frail and broken condition, Dottie was still able to do that for someone else. I told that story because there's a pretty significant contrast between my restlessness in the paradise of Grand Cayman and Dottie's ability not only to make the most of the day, but to hand out blessings to someone else, even in a hospital bed. And Jesus does something like that. Even hanging on the cross, he is handing out blessings. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a vision we can only imagine, and it presents us with many more questions than answers. But one truth seems clear, and there is a challenge that goes with it. We will not achieve wholeness in this life. For the paradise we seek is back at home with God. And yet in the time that we have, we are given a chance each day to receive the gift of the day God has given us and to share that gift with someone else. And we do this so that they and we might feel a bit more of God's love along this journey. This journey we are all taking that will one day lead us home.